you are listening to the Nupi podcast. My name is Tora Bergenaterstad and I'll be talking to Andrei Makarichev, professor at the Johan Schütte Institute of Political Studies about the Russian regime and the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome, Andrei. Thank you. These last few weeks, we've seen records broken every day of daily COVID cases in Russia. We have more than 800,000 excess deaths and... Experts estimate that the pandemic may lower the Russian life expectancy by up to five years. So this is becoming evident as a very acute crisis for the Kremlin. But at the same time, we know that these kinds of shocks also represent political opportunities. Now, Russia illustrates very well, I think, how we as social scientists have to understand the pandemic as something of what the anthropologists call a total social phenomenon, right? meaning that it's at once economic, legal and political, cultural and moral, and social and personal. And it's also international. And so it's it's embedded in this very intricately interwoven web of forces. So the next 20 minutes, we'll try to unpack this web of forces a little bit and try to, to figure out how the pandemic plays into Russian politics at home and on the world stage. And so, very simple question first, Andrei. Has COVID changed Russian politics? Well, I would um, start with saying that it uh, it might change Russian politics and it started changing Russian politics, but I don't know is to what extent those changes b- might be important and uh, significant. But what is observable right now is that... Uh, medicine became a kind of a new basis, a new foundation for uh, political decisions or non-decisions. We are quite clearly seeing the infusion of medical terminology into political discourses and uh, uh, political narratives. And this is something new, uh, not only for Russia, but I think it's a global uh, phenomenon. And uh, again, this is not about just something abstract like uh, institutions or ideologies. This is a very uh, specific type of uh, medicalization of politics because ultimately it is about uh, how to uh, how to control, how to incite people to take care of their uh, of their lives and of their bodies. So basically, uh, human lives and human bodies. Uh, become an object of uh, different uh, different regulations and different policies. The question is, one of the questions is that, uh, unfortunately, there is no consensus, even within the professional medical community, on many important issues, starting from uh, the policy of uh, wearing masks and uh, then uh, all the way down to uh, the expiration of uh, vaccines and how long they are effective, uh, etc. So there, there are many debates in the, in, the, in the medical community, which is, which is only natural for the development of uh, rational knowledge. But the political problem is how to build a consistent and non-controversial policy or set of policies based on either insufficient knowledge or controversial knowledge or unknowledge in uh, in a more general sense. Uh, of course, politicians are afraid of being inactive. 
of being perceived as passive or being perceived as uh, uh, lacking a political political will. But in the meantime, and this is uh, uh, the case of, uh, of, of Russia, uh, uh, political leaders in power seem to be quite fearful of and hesitant and reluctant to take responsibility for political decisions. And many of these decisions are not just abstract decisions. And they are not foreign policy decisions. They are decisions that are affecting everyday lives of, uh, of uh, Russian people. So that's why what we observe in Russia is a kind of relegation of, uh, of uh, decision-making authorities from the center to, uh, well, let's say, other hands. I guess maybe it, it was easier in the in the beginning when, you know, the ruling narrative was that this was a success story for Russia. This winter, the Russian public discourse was celebrating how Russians were able to live a fairly normal life. And you think there's a clear dimension of nationalism to this, right? It's a demonstration of a superior society in a way. What do you think? I think Russia is not unique in this... Um attempts to frame the debate in uh, more like uh, either national-oriented or nationalist uh, terms. Uh, what we can see from the experience of other countries as well is that even medical expertise became, uh, became kind of nationally grounded. So basically, uh, medical experts uh, speak on behalf of national community, and they are more interested to look at how different measures and policies affect not just uh, global uh, humankind, but specific national communities. So that's, uh, that's, that's quite a new development in, uh, in uh, let's say, heart, uh, heart sciences. When it comes to uh, Russian vaccine nationalism, it's a very uh, ambiguous phenomenon. On the one hand, uh, Russia took a serious risk in registering uh, the vaccine named Sputnik V, uh, before all normal stages of uh, uh, of uh, uh, trials and uh, experimentations are over. Uh, but in the meantime, those people who took the decision, uh, I think uh, they thought that this is a leadership, that this is how leadership should be manifested in times of crisis, in times of emergency, or in times of a global, uh, global state of uh, alert. Uh, whether it was a success story or not, I think it's too early to judge. I tend to be more skeptical about this project, basically because what I see is that Russian vaccine is not registered by World Health Organization, WHO, and this is a the, the, the global uh, standard setter for uh, many, many countries. Uh, Russian vaccine is not registered in Europe by European Medicines Agency. And I think this is, uh, uh, I mean, these two factors are quite, uh, quite serious. So problems with registration. We know that Russia faces technical issues with uh, uh, delivery of uh, vaccine to many countries. So Russia signs uh, agreements, but it's not always that Russia can meet the, the timeline, the time frame. Uh, we know that uh, in countries like, for example, Slovakia, there was, a, well, I would say a scandal with uh, discovering that the 
the liquids uh, are not uh, really corresponding to uh, what was supposed to be there. So the quality was put under question, and I don't think that it works for, for the promotion of uh, vaccines. And uh, I also know that in some countries in which Sputnik V was accepted as a part of the vaccine market, so there are many other vaccines, their, their reputation, the popularity of Sputnik is not that high. That's the case of Slovakia, that's the case of Moldova, uh, etc. So I think it's, uh, it's, it's very ambiguous as a project. The Sputnik vaccine obviously named after the first artificial satellite to orbit uh, Earth in 57. And especially in the first half year or so of the pandemic, it definitely felt like there was this, this parallel to a time of space race, for example. Uh, and at times, you know, it felt like that in the rhetoric as well. One thing that comes to mind that definitely raised my eyebrow a little bit when it happened was uh, when Putin at the Valdai Forum last year said to those who are still waiting for the gradual demise of Russia, we are only worried about one thing, how not to catch a cold at your funeral. Do you think that's a fair comparison? Is, is this great power politics? I think it's very symbolic. If it's great power politics, it's, it's very symbolic. And at this point, I think we should differentiate between discourses. There are many discourses in uh, Russia produced by many um, professionals and uh, journalists and politicians. And uh, on the other hand, we have uh, a real uh, situation on the ground. Of course, uh, Russian political elite, the collective Kremlin, they're trying to uh, to take advantage of uh, uh, of the Sputnik V project, and they're trying to differentiate Russia as an exceptional country, as a country that is allegedly less affected by the virus than other countries, the uh, a country that uh, is uh, has a greater immunity or uh, greater resilience to the virus. That's all what comes from the Kremlin and some other sources. And in the meantime, this uh, attempt to uh, portray Russia as an indispensable power, a power that uh, has a reputation that would be drastically different from uh, uh, what happened in 2014. I mean, Russia is an aggressor. Russia is an uh, unfriendly nation to its its neighbors. So by uh, promoting Sputnik V, Russia definitely tries to rebrand itself. Exactly as it tried to rebrand itself before Sochi Olympics or the World uh, FIFA Cup 2018. So it's not the first attempt of Russia to switch narratives from one set of issues to a different set of, uh, set of issues. In a more long-term perspective, my interpretation of this Russian uh, uh, discursive attempts to, uh, let's say, uh, change the narrative is that Russia wants to prevent the West from coming back to the uh, narrative of uh, 2014, uh, in which Russia really lost a lot in terms of its reputation, and again to present Russia in a different capacity, in a different role. Uh, and health diplomacy seems to be one of these niches. What is health diplomacy? Well, health, health diplomacy is a concept that was developed years, if not decades, before uh, the COVID-19 uh, crisis. Uh, and it's usually it's uh, interpreted as a multilateral uh, policies of major stakeholders of the wealthiest countries that might be instrumental for helping other countries 
to either overcome their health crisis in plural or just to be good so i mean sources of supply of uh, the indispensable uh, medicines etc so initially health diplomacy as a concept described this multilateral attempts of uh, countries to contribute to the world uh, health protection. Health diplomacy in the case of Russia is more unilateral. Russia is not that much interested in COVAX, this global platform for vaccines. Nothing comes from Eurasian Economic Union that would be multilateral. Russia, again, plays more or less unilateral games, trying to convince some EU members like Hungary and Slovakia just to purchase vaccines, skipping the regulations. And that's what uh, the initial policy was, and I think it remains pretty much, uh, pretty much the same, uh, expanding the market for Sputnik, or, for example, co-producing Sputnik with uh, other countries. So I think we, we should make a distinction between just offering this uh, vaccine that is produced in Russia and co-producing Sputnik in uh, countries like Italy or Switzerland or some other countries. So all these are part of this kind of success uh, stories of uh, Russia. I think tactically they might be successful, but strategically, frankly speaking, uh, I'm not sure. And this unilateral uh, nature of Russian health diplomacy is a major issue. Has this process been successful in in, uh, boosting or strengthening this exceptionalist identity? Russia wanted to build its uh, crisis management strategy on the basis of uh, this uh, new inter- reinterpretation of Russian exceptionalism. Uh, but I think uh, deploying identity at the, at the center of those policies and attempts is quite a, quite a slippery and quite a, quite a controversial issue. Because the whole uh, concept of Russian identity was always very controversial. So on the one hand... Russia wants to be recognized as an indispensable power. Uh, uh, Russia wants to uh, to get back to Europe after almost a decade of uh, relative isolation. Uh, and uh, Russia tries to be constructive and uh, propose a mutual recognition of vaccines, for example. Again, skipping technical uh, um, filters and regulations. But in the meantime, Russian uh, discourse on vaccine is well seems to be quite confrontational and this is what makes it inconsistent within this discourse and this comes not from marginal forces but basically from the mainstream discourse makers there is always a kind of uh, russia against the west uh, element uh, basically uh, boiling down to attempts to well let's say blacken uh, AstraZeneca and other vaccines as Russian competitors so on the one hand there is a market logic in that and on the other hand there is a political logic the very fact that some of the vaccines are uh, characterized in Russia as western vaccines I think adds a lot of politically uh, confrontational element in uh, Russian discourse and frankly speaking I you know whether Russia would be able to make uh, its uh, discourse more uh, more uh, coherent let's say, uh, less confrontational and more cooperative. So far, I see these two layers, and they do not necessarily, well, let's say, sit or match uh, each other. There is this this quite heavy structure of the besieged fortress narrative, right? So, and I think that ties in quite well with what you're saying with the, the vaccine. And also, I think, with the landscape of 
conspiracy theories, different reactions, uh, different narratives about vaccine, about the, the truth and reality of, of these health measures. One of the things that uh, I've noticed is that a recent poll from the Levada Center suggested that 61% of Russians think that COVID is not a natural disease, but a new form of biological weapon. And that's you know, quite an extraordinary number. Do you have any thoughts on that? Where is that coming from? I think it's coming from the previous years, if not decades, of uh, Russian um, state-sponsored uh, discourse that was <clears throat> uh, uh, quite intensely propagated through the media. And this discourse was very much embedded in this conspiratorial thinking. Again, this collective West uh, that uh, allegedly encircles Russia with... Uh, uh, biological laboratories like in Georgia, for example, in Ukraine, in Kazakhstan, <clears throat> and in some other countries uh, with American help and with American uh, finances. And allegedly these laboratories were uh, working on uh, ethno-specific type of viruses that uh, might kill only people with, uh, I know, either Russian uh, ethnic or, in a general sense, Slavic uh, backgrounds. So all these type of narrative, they were part of Russian mainstream discourse for years and people started believing in that uh, now what i suspect is that these discourses this conspiratorial type of thinking might play against uh, russian uh, policy of uh, stimulating people to vaccinate themselves because uh, there is a, a general mistrust to uh, to vaccines again on the conspiratorial background and this is part of Russian reality. Russia has a relatively low level of vaccination, partly because of that, partly because many people uh, believe that uh, not only uh, the virus is a part of this, you know, conspiratorial thinking, but the vaccine is also part of this uh, conspiratorial, uh, let's say, uh, frame, discursive frame. Uh, and... Uh, that's, I think, it's, it's, it's a big problem. How to convince people to take a more rational position towards their bodies, having you know this uh, this pre-existing uh, background of uh, mistrust to uh, to vaccination and, in fact, mistrust to rational knowledge. I think that's a, a very good point, and it also ties in with the issue of legitimacy. And you know, we know each other through a project called Legitrus on values-based regime legitimation in. Russia. And so before we wrap up, I have to ask, what is this doing for legitimacy going forward? Is this the final straw for Putin's regime? Well, <clears throat> I think uh, when it comes to foreign policy legitimacy, Russia tries to use Sputnik V project as a tool to reinstall uh, Russia as a legitimate force in the world as, uh, as a positive uh, force, as a supplier of something that saves uh, lives, etc. So uh, at least when it comes to, again, international relations, that's, uh, that's uh, quite visible and apparent. When it comes to domestic uh, uh, elements of legitimacy, I think the situation is much more complex because uh, what I see uh, observing uh, this modus operandi of uh, uh, the collective Kremlin in the last couple of years of uh, the crisis 
is that uh, Putin uh, is kind of detaching himself, almost voluntarily, detaching himself from the center of uh, Russian politics. This phenomenon is known uh, from the experiences of other countries as well. Politicians are afraid of taking responsibility. They relegate uh, their, their decision-making powers to lower levels of, of, of the government, uh, etc. In liberal states, it's more or less okay. But when it comes to uh, an illiberal state that was uh, for years, if not decades, uh, building its uh, political mythology on the basis of uh, unquestionable centrality of the sovereign, the supreme holder of power for everything that happens in this country. And now we see that this mythology is not, uh, uh, is not, is not relevant, it's not valid uh, anymore. In principle, we can imagine Russian uh, anti-crisis strategy without even mentioning Putin. That's, that, that's possible. It's, it's not that we are discarding his, uh, uh, his role. But what we are observing is that when it comes to decision-making powers, much more important are other uh, actors, the government and the ministries. Uh, and uh, within ministries, we also have uh, the different distribution of powers. Someone is controlling, like Rospatrebnadzor, for example, and some others are more taking care of uh, people's lives, and this is health ministry, so there is redistribution of authorities. And also for a country as huge as Russia, uh, what is important is that uh, many powers are now in the hands of, of uh, sub-national units, local governors, and they were fighting for that for years, saying that we know better what to do in our regions, in our cities, and they were denied the right to control many important parts of public policy. Now they do have their uh, this uh, power instrument, these tools for regulating labor markets, for introducing measures of lockdown, or controlling, even controlling borders, controlling uh, QR codes, uh, and, and many other important issues. So that's what I mean by this decentralization of uh, uh, decision-making. This decentralization does not affect financial dependence on, on, of, of regions on the federal center. It's still very much vertical. It's still very much uh, submissive to, uh, to the federal authorities. Uh, but at least in, 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 in the, the regional authority, they have some autonomy when it comes to, uh, to uh, decision-making. So in this sense, what can be deducted uh, from, from that is that uh, the center is losing its political uh, political centrality uh, in uh, Russian uh, political system, whether it's a long-term process or just a temporary redistribution of cards, we don't know. But even if it's a temporary redistribution of cards, I'm just wondering whether it would be that easy uh, for the Kremlin to get back those powers, to say, oh, okay, we are more or less uh, in uh, the post-COVID time, so there is no direct threat, and now these uh, powers again go back to, uh, to, to the Kremlin, whether governors would be happy uh, with that, or whether they would, they, they would fight for this, uh, uh, those powers, uh, those competences that uh, they were practicing and exercising for quite you know, significant, uh, significant time. Much will depend, of course, on uh, whether there will be... Uh, success stories in regions um, when it comes to uh, anti-crisis policies uh, and uh, whether people in uh, regions would accept 
governors as more important, uh, more important uh, policymakers and decision makers than the federal center. What the first wave of crisis demonstrated is that in many of uh, Russian regions, uh, there are strong anti-Moscow attitudes. Again, I'm, I'm not saying that this is a structural phenomenon, but it is one of the elements that we definitely need to take into account when uh, speaking about Russian um, uh, federalism and center-periphery uh, relations. Uh, the, the crisis became like uh, you know a litmus test. It just accelerated certain trends that exist in, in the society. So this kind of distancing from Moscow was quite uh, visible, especially in the, during the first wave of, of, of the crisis. And I also think that this might contribute to the legitimation of, uh, of, uh, of, of the Kremlin, again, in its capacity as uh, indispensable uh, uh, structural element of the whole political system in Russia. Thank you, Andrei. That's it from us today. You've heard an episode of the New P podcast with me, Tora bergen and Andrei Makaricev. This podcast from the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs is part of the project Legitrus on values-based regime legitimation in Russia and is produced in cooperation with the Norwegian Russia Network. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much.